Uh, if you have your Bible, copy of God's Word in front of you, I invite you to turn to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, didn't bring one with you, there should be one there in the seat in front of you. You can open that up to page 818. If this is the first time that you've been in church, maybe you've never read from a Bible before, just want to keep it simple. The big numbers are the chapters, the little numbers are the verses. This helps you to follow along with us as we read from God's Word together, because um, we're just straight up here. Nothing that we try and say is going to change you. The only thing that will change you is God's Word that you're holding in front of you. So we make no bones about that. We make uh, no quibbles about what we're trying to do here. So want you to be able to follow along. Tonight we're going to be looking at seven verses. It was a big jump for us from what we've normally been doing, taking a couple verses at a time, but we're going to tackle this uh, paragraph, this thought together. So if you're there in Colossians chapter 2, if you'd stand with us for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 16. This is the word of the Lord. So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom, in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. We bless God for keeping his word for us, praise him for that, and thank him that we get the opportunity to read it together. Let's pray tonight. Father, we come before you tonight very much aware of the fact that we are fallen people in need of someone to rescue us. And the only way we can be rescued uh, from the sin that is on the inside is not by cleaning up the outside. Though the temptation is often there to do that, Father, we know that the inward change comes before the outward. So we ask tonight as we think through your word that you would help us uh, to carefully read it, to study it, and to apply it. But Father, we're also mindful tonight of churches around the city who are also opening the word tonight and studying. We think of Parkcrest Baptist Church, Paul Ebert in the college ministry there, Phil Housley, their pastor, Blake Housley, their student pastor. We ask that you would watch over them, protect them. May they increase, may their tribe grow, may they impact people around our city for the cause of Christ. Also think of Boulevard Baptist Church tonight, and Doug Shivers, and Wayne Garrison, and Matthew Whitaker. God, we just ask that you would, again, we know that we don't own the gospel. We know that it's not unique to Crossway. We know that we're not the only people who are doing gospel ministry in the city. So we just ask that you would bless these brothers, that they may uh, preach the gospel faithfully, see people come from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And with that in mind, Father, we're also aware that there are people tonight who've never heard the name of Jesus, who stand before you if they were to meet you tonight 
would spend eternity separated from you uh, for the fact, simple fact that they are condemned in their sins and need to be rescued uh, by the blood of Jesus Christ. But no one has taken the gospel to them. Think of the Kami people in Nepal, the Tariq people in Algeria, Father. I ask that you would, if you would see fit to raise up missionaries from our church, even perhaps from our college ministry, that would take the gospel to these people who do not know you, have never heard of you. And then, Father, again, I ask that you would just be with us as we make our way through your word. May it pierce our hearts. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to believe. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, a famous dead theologian by the name of John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's probably one of the most well-known quotes from that particular theologian. I think that it, most of us would agree that this is a helpful approach to the Christian life. If you're sitting in here tonight and you're a Christian, you would argue that it's helpful to put sin to death. You need to be about that business. But I would venture to say that if we were to go around the room tonight and if we were to put a whiteboard on one of the walls and list off particular sins, most of us would not list things that appear to be spiritual. In fact, I would be willing to wager that most of the things on our list would not even remotely appear spiritual. However, living in a culture and a society and a day and an age where the idea of being spiritual for spirituality's sake is becoming more and more prevalent, it's important that Christians recognize what it actually means when we say we're keeping Christ at the center of our lives. And here, at the closing of Colossians chapter 2, we peer in as the Apostle Paul continues his rebuttal against the heretics, the false teachers in the city of Colossae, who are specifically arguing for certain things. And now we pick up speed, as it were, in these final verses of Colossians 2, and we see the Apostle Paul narrowing his focus, if you will, and attacking some specific ideas and practices that have no doubt crept into Colossae and into the church at Colossae. And Paul is like a great surgeon. He has cleaned, sterilized his scalpel, and now prepares to go to work. This is a good reminder to us as we prepare to look at these verses. The Apostle Paul far more often comes in like a surgeon, carefully cutting away false and dangerous thoughts rather than your local county seed butcher with a giant meat cleaver chopping sections of meat to be taken out of his store. It's a good reminder for us because far too often Christians are not careful with their words. They're not careful with their ideals, their thoughts, their practices. We need to be, even when we interact with one another. Apostle Paul carefully pulls this out and begins to go to work. And he's going to suggest in this particular text three ways that we can keep Christ at the center, and they all involve putting to death certain ideas or certain uh, mentalities. And so tonight we're going to, in the time that we're gathered, look at these three things and see if there's any area of our lives where we are guilty of falling into this trap. 
The first thing that he addresses is this idea, kill legalism, kill legalism. If we're going to keep Christ at the center, we must kill legalism. Look at verses 16 and 17. So no, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Here in verses 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul talks about this idea, this temptation for the Jewish believers who've been converted to judge their level of maturity around their ability to keep certain rituals. It refers specifically first to food or drink rituals. It's unhelpful for them to hold to these food and drink rituals for mainly one specific reason. Being Jewish, holding to a Jewish drink and food rituals was a great way to preserve a Jew's ethnic identity. Just in case we're curious, yes, race issues existed in the first century church. Here, the Apostle Paul is being very careful to remind these Jewish believers not to find their identity in their food and drink rituals, which would have given them license to hold on closer to, we're Jewish, you're not. We're in, you're not. And it's a good reminder to us all that even though we might not be tempted to go as far as saying this practice is part, or this food is what it means to be a Christ follower, although we kind of have with Chick-fil-A. I don't think that that's a bad thing, necessarily. We need to be careful here because I've seen in recent days that mean, hard pill to swallow, Chick-fil-A is not that good. Friend, repent and turn back to Christ if that is you. But while we might be tempted to think in those ways, there are subtle ways, if we're not careful, where we can connect our identity or who we are in how we worship. Friends, if you go and visit believers in other countries, you're going to find very quickly that they don't always worship the same way that a Western church worships. We need to be careful that our rituals don't become something that we elevate to the place of Christ. Because here's what these believers were doing. They're adding food and drink rituals to what it meant to be a Christ follower. But the Apostle Paul also notices and calls out that, or regarding a festival, or new moons, or Sabbaths. This idea of a, of a ritual calendar that you see in the Old Testament that was followed closely by Jewish uh, people, and the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. The Apostle Paul reminds them, don't elevate your calendar to the level of Christ. It's not bad for them to observe these things, but it was a very tempting way for them to equate their calendar with idol worship. You say, how can a calendar be idol worship? They're just celebrating what they've always celebrated. It becomes idol worship when it's elevated to the same thing as what it means to follow Christ. Meaning, you, in order to be a true Christian, you must follow Christ and you must keep this Jewish ritualistic calendar. And I say, David, that, okay, we're not struggling with that. It's potentially not that. Hopefully you're not like suggesting that we have to hold to a bunch of 
festivals. But people are tempted towards legalism in all sorts of ways. Remember, Solomon writes in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Meaning that the principle is unchanging. The practice might change, but the principle is still there. Think of it in this way. Are you less willing to worship with people if they don't look like you? Dress like you? Enjoy the same type of worship music as you? Read from the same translation of the Bible as you? You might be tempted towards legalism. And this is the great trap of being young. You think you're not legalistic. You tend to be. You're just the opposite of whatever your parents are. So your parents may say, I can't believe you don't sing enough hymns. And that kind of really makes me mad. And you're like, well, you know what, old man? Like, I don't sing enough of this type of music and worship. I don't understand why that college pastor doesn't preach from the King James. And you're like, well, I don't understand why he doesn't preach from the ESV. What's wrong with him? There's a lot of things. We don't have time to discuss that tonight. That's not what we're here for. You're tempted to view something and elevate it to the level of following Christ. Perhaps your legalism doesn't come from any of the things that I just listed, but it comes to the people that you're willing to listen to. This is really where we get into some murky waters, especially with college students in the 21st century and the fact that at any point in time, you can listen to about 150 other people who can preach better than I can. And it turns into a modern-day Corinth. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I am of Apollos, I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, and then you've always got that one guy who's like Jesus juking everybody in the room. He's like, well, I'm of Jesus. Like, okay, Greg, we get it. Just sit over there with your MacArthur study Bible and keep telling us how you only listen to Jesus. The same thing happens in our modern churches. And I listen to college students all the time. And they're like, I don't know how you can't listen to, to only David Platt. I don't know why you're not all about John Piper. I don't know why you're not all about this person or that person. And suddenly... Your legalism has even crept into who you're willing to listen to preach the Bible. And it even happens here. Maybe we'll slide down and listen to the college pastor when this person on staff preaches on Sunday night. Or if we know Pastor Eddie's not preaching on Sunday night, maybe we can stay home and watch the Super Bowl. Or we can stay home and watch this particular TV show. Don't want to miss Big Brother because Eddie Bumpers isn't preaching. So we got a pass, and it creeps into every area of life. Here's the danger of that. Here's why legalism, especially the kind of legalism, that pervasive legalism that was invading the church of Colossae is so bad, and the Colossians are so impacted on it, because verse 17 says, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Here Paul continues to put nails into the coffin and reminds them that legalism ultimately leads to faith that's focused on rules and not on Christ. 
which is why Paul refers to it as a shadow of things to come. Because Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the law. Matthew 5, 17 and 18 says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. You say, that's great. Who cares what Matthew has to say? The problem with that is that's not Matthew who's speaking there. It's Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am the better and best fulfillment. I came to fulfill all of those rituals. All of those things that those rituals were meant to imply. The holiness of God and the ordering of your life around God. All of that is what, you you read Leviticus and I know some of you, you're like, well, I started my Bible reading plan. It was going real well. Got through Genesis. I got to I got to Exodus, that was pretty cool. I got to Leviticus and things just got weird. Just remember when you're reading through the book of Leviticus, all of Leviticus is pointing to the fact that God is holy and we are not. And that unless someone else prepares the way for us to enter into God's presence, we have no hope of not being banqueted immediately in heaven with him. And they're finding their hope in rituals says, says, I'm the the better fulfillment. I'm the best fulfillment. Those things pointed to the need for me. And see, here's where the danger of legalism is. It directs us away from the actual Savior that we need and points us to a shallow Savior that that came to save us. Because it doesn't matter how much you require everyone in the room to wear a coat and a tie. Just like when David showed up or when Samuel showed up to anoint a new prophet, God had to remind him, Samuel, we're not looking on the outward appearance of guys. We're looking at their hearts. That's what we're after. And friends, when God looks at you, he's far more concerned with your heart than your outward activity. Because God knows this ultimately about you, that when your heart changes, the outward will soon follow. So are you looking tonight for something other than Christ to validate yourself? Anything other than Christ to validate yourself, but even more so inside a church, being this person, being this way. And then I would just ask you this tonight, where are you tempted to judge other people? When you come to church, you don't sit there all pious and act like you don't do this, but when you come to church, where are you tempted to judge other people? Where are you tempted to look at others and think better of yourself because of them. God needs a change there, friends. He needs a change about the way that we view one another. And yeah, I understand. There's a, there's a, we've got to be balanced here. Because there's, there's this side of it, too. Like, there's the legalist side that's like, if that guy's shoes aren't shine, he certainly can't love Christ. And there's the other side. That we're in Christ, so we can do whatever we want. So, it doesn't matter if he rolls into church listening to music that would make even sailors uncomfortable. I don't know why sailors get a bad rap. I just said that. I just came out. Now I got mouth like a sailor. Like, what'd that guy ever do? Anyway, side note. Oftentimes, we'll let our friends pass on both sides. And I'm simply saying legalism and license 
ultimately restore Christ. And really, saying I have the freedom to do whatever I want to do in Christ is a different type of authority. It's just dressed differently. Probably looks more like a hood authority, but is dressed differently. Second thing, not only do we need to kill legalism, also have to kill mysticism. This is real popular in our culture at large. Look at verse 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. There is a real mystical infatuation that was taking place in Colossae, and it's creeping into the church. Gnosticism had infiltrated the church's atmosphere through these false teachers. You say, Gnosticism, what's Gnosticism? Good question. Gnosticism teaches that uh, the world was created and ruled by a lesser divinity. Jesus is kind of the way in. Or you could describe it this way. Being a Gnostic is being overly spiritual and claiming to have insider information that no one else has. And you're kind of in trouble if you're not in, and you're kind of in trouble if you are in. So it's like this higher life type of, like, I've got this deeper experience. Here's what these Gnostic teachers were saying, basically. They're, they're projecting a false humility in verse 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. They're basically saying, hey, look, we're super humble. Just let us tell you. That's always a bad indicator. If someone's willing to tell you how humble they are, there's probably a good indicator that they aren't. But this is what makes it even crazier. They're, they're saying we're more humble because we're talking to angels and worshiping them rather than bothering God. Think about what that does. One, it suggests that we have insider information. We can talk to angels, which is just kind of And two, it's diminishing who God is in his omnipotence, his omniscience, and his omnipresence. In other words, it's insulting to God, suggesting that he isn't all-powerful, that he isn't all-knowing, and it can't be experienced directly talking to him. So we're humble. We're not bothered, God, because God can handle our problems. We don't want to bother him. We don't want to burden him. Be careful. Be careful. When you hear somebody say, in order to understand the gospel, you must do this. You must buy this book. You must be a part of this group. We have a deeper understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Friends, if you find yourself trapped into that line of thinking, you've just walked into a cult. A insider group. This is what happens, sadly, inside of uh, Scientology. You want to climb on your way. Trust me. You ever go buy a Christian science reading room? You're tempted. Maybe there's some cool books in there. I can assure you there's not. I can also assure you that what's in there is not Christian, certainly not science. This is one of the primary new age techniques whereby there's kind of this deeper, higher life. And if you just will invest this amount of money and go to this many seminars and give this up about your life and come and be a part of this with us, 
then you'll really know what it means. And you kind of move up these different levels. Friends, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, if we're tempted to buy into the hype of what's new, stuff like that's not new. It's incredibly old. Al Mohler famously said, it's basically like watching the rerun for Parasite. Your mom might like Andy Griffith. I guess this is a great SAT question. If your mom is to Andy Griffith what Christian Scientology is to Parasite, right? I guess I can quit this job and write SAT questions. I didn't even know it. This is a false humility. It's just saying we're insiders and we know. I think, and I don't often quote paraphrases because I, I don't know that they're always helpful, but I did find this helpful. Colossians 2.18 in a, a popular paraphrase says, don't tolerate people who try to run your life insisting that you join their obsession with angels and that you seek out visions. That's verse 18 of Colossians chapter 2. That's the other side, the flip side of this as well. There's this infatuation with seeking out visions as if that's a validation of being an actual Christ follower. This is a mystical idea. I want to be careful here because I intend to be critical, but I also want to be careful because I understand that Painting with a broad brush isn't always helpful. There are people inside of the Pentecostal holiness movement that believe unless you speak in tongues or you see a vision that you aren't actually saved. Friends, that is not biblical. It is heretical. I want to be careful, though, and say that not just like all Baptists don't look like Westboro, Pentecostal holiness assemblies of God don't look the same. I want to be careful. Again, as your pastor, just lovingly listening to some of the conversations that I hear even in our own college ministry about different denominations. Be very careful what you say. Because odds are you're probably wrong. We need to be careful how we talk about brothers and sisters that preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel clearly. This is what this whole text is after. Christ is at the center, and when we get pulled off into these different areas, we diminish Christ and we exalt things that have nothing to do. So anyone who tells you, well, if you haven't seen this, not experienced that, be wary. The only thing that a person must experience in order to be a Christ follower is conviction for their sins, repenting of those sins, trusting and believing in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, and continual walking in obedience to him. That is what is required to be a Christ follower. Not some weird visit from a guy that looks like an angel. I, I, I don't want this to be cruel or mean, but... Friends, maybe instead of insisting on that, don't eat tacos before you go to bed. And I do think there's some of that that plays into it, but I also do want to say this too. I very much am a believer in spiritual warfare. And I do believe that there are certain things that the evil one loves to do to divide people who genuinely have trusted Christ. And one of the primary ways he does that is through false teachers who come and say, you have to experience this. And we live in an age that's highly mystical. In case you haven't noticed, beware of anyone that suggests that 
you just experience this and you'll grow in your relationship with God. If you do this, verse 19 is so helpful. And not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. One of the pervasive ideas that is infiltrating of evangelical churches and even, God help us, Southern Baptist churches, is the idea that you can grow in your relationship with God outside of Christ and his word and being involved in a regular committed church. It's dangerous. Friends, I I did not intend to come up here and critique people. It seems as though the Holy Spirit is bringing those things to my mind right now. But I'm just thinking of like, you walk into your local Christian bookstore, I would just encourage you, you see a stand of books by uh, Sarah Young for Jesus Calling, you just walk on by. Just walk on by. I struggle because I want to walk on by and push it down. You need to just walk by. An idea that you can have an extra voice speaking to you and you can go searching for that in addition to your Bible reading is not biblical. You want to know how God speaks to people today? Open his word, read it, and if you're still struggling to hear from God, pray it back to him, his word. And watch as the Holy Spirit illuminates you to understand what his word is saying. Rather than trying to hear some other audible voice. I used to tell students when I taught a class on biblical interpretation at the Bible college, they were always disappointed by this. I would convince them that I could get them to hear from God. They didn't hear an audible voice. They could hear God speaking. Really load this up on the front end. Encourage them to close their eyes. Squint as they close them just in case it was too faint. And then I would flip to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, which read, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable to doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I would read it aloud. And I would ask them to open their eyes and said, They just heard the voice of God. scripture read aloud but you're the person who really needs to hear God speaking to you close your door read your chapters or whatever you're doing in your Bible reading plan aloud and pray before you do it and earnestly seek God I want to know you more but I want to know you inside of how you've chosen to operate a lot of times even tonight maybe someone will walk up to me and say David I don't understand why you want to put God in a box I don't want to put God in a box. And I'm not putting God in a box because God has chosen to put himself in a Bible. And that's how he's chosen to communicate with us. That's how he's chosen to, to lead to us. So I just, again, just ask you, are you infatuated with things that aren't a requirement for following Christ as a means for maturity? And are you attempting to try and grow in some way that the Bible doesn't encourage you to grow? You're like, well, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. Congratulations. You love Jesus, but you don't love the thing that he died for. Read Ephesians chapter 5. Jesus makes it clear his expectation for marriage, along with, by implication, how serious 
he takes his relationship with the Lord. Finally tonight, and this is going to seem odd potentially, but I couldn't think of another way to put it, so I put it this way. Kill extreme spirituality. You might say, David, aren't, isn't that what we're after? I mean, we all read the book by uh, David Platt that said we just need to be more radical. Like, is it what we're supposed to be after? You re- go back and read that book. You'll notice, though, that what David Platt argues for in his book, Radical, is a radical commitment to God's word and living that out in a missional way. Completely different from what's going on in Colossae. Verse 20 says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Here's what the Apostle Paul is getting after. These particular believers are trying to find their fulfillment in following Christ and putting up extreme, arbitrary regulations. I love old dead theologians. If you've been around here long enough, you know that. You come to my office, you know that. If you spend any time with me, there's probably going to be a Puritan quote that comes at some point, or an early church father. But they're not infallible. They're not. You want a perfect example of how the early church fathers are infallible. And I know this is a good illustration to use with college students. The early church fathers thought that enjoying sex was a sin because of the fall. I mean, they argued for it at length. If you read the Bible, you can tell that God is after you enjoying being married enjoying sex inside of that covenant boundary. The early fathers are like, you can't enjoy it. you got to wonder what's going on in their lives. This is the kind of asceticism, though, that pervades into your society. This idea of a higher life type of abstaining from certain things. Asceticism is a severe self-discipline and avoiding of all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. A modern-day version of this would be like, I'm abstaining from cupcakes. Because cupcakes, they just I, I delight in them too much. They, they, they taste too good. It must be sinful. Beloved, God created the ingredients to make cupcakes. You can enjoy that. Now, if you, like, eat 18 of them, it's gluttony. You know the Bible speaks to that issue. This is just the ridiculousness of our society. Like, well, it might be evil to enjoy this or to do this. F.F. Bruce famously stated that asceticism, this type of living, is just feeding the flesh by starving. Basically, you're making yourself feel better by denying yourself something that nowhere inside of Scripture are you called to deny it. It's like, well... I do enjoy pizza, but if I go out and have a slice of Godfather, I may enjoy it too much. And I don't want to be holier. I don't want to be worldly. So I know I'm going to delight and enjoy it. So I'm going to watch me abstain, and then they make a big show of it. These things, verse 23, indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, there it is again, and neglect of the body but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Because you're just indulging yourself in a different way. You're faking yourself out. 
you're making yourself believe that what you're doing is actually more valuable than what it actually is. Cubic zirconium stimulants or stimulants are more affordable than real diamonds. I'm not telling you anything that you don't know here. I do think this is interesting. A one carat hand cut, hand polished gemstone made from CZ will retail for around $20 versus a one carat diamond with a passable cut, color, and clarity grades will retail around $1,500. A mediocre two carat diamond will retail around $5,000. And what's graded as medium, not even excellent or acceptable is around $7,000, whereas a two-carat cubic zirconian ring will retail for about $30. And unless you know what you're doing, you really know what you're looking for, just like anything else in the world, we are very good at passing things off that look like something that's far more valuable. There are a lot of Christians who wave around their spirituality like one of those fake religions. They want everybody to believe it's worth seven grand. Realistically, it's not even worth $30. Quit pretending to be more godly than you are for the sake of impressing everyone around you. Because here's the bottom line. One day you'll stand before God and give an account for your life. And their friends, your cheap engagement ring, will burn up like dust in your hand. You know that. I think some of you tonight, your greatest need as a Christian is to stop acting like you have it all together. That you're above sinning, you never mess up. When you do, you're quick to try and cover your tracks, throw other people under the bus, and make yourself look to be more good. You sit in a small group and make up things about what you've read from God's word. Or even worse, you're reading God's word, but you're not actually paying attention to it because you're just trying to get your bigger and bigger sum so you can impress the people around you. I'm going to be real honest with you. It's one of the reasons why I don't talk about my Bible reading, the amount of plans or the lack of amount of plans or the amount of chapters or the lack of amount of chapters that I do. Because it's easy to fall into the temptation of appearing to be more godly than you ought to be, especially for the guy who's supposed to preach and teach the Bible. And I just know that temptation in my own heart. There are a few people that know what I'm trying to accomplish throughout the year, and I'm communicating with them, and they're checking in with me. I don't want to be tempted to be the guy waving around a fake engagement ring. I'm in love with Jesus. Friends, be far more concerned about the style. Be far more concerned about the substance of the Bible than the style or the size or the type that it is. Because God's far more concerned that you know it than you be impressive as you walk around with it. tried all of these different things to make you right before God and you keep coming up empty or even tonight you're like I have no idea what you're talking about 
Because I don't even know how to act spiritually. Praise God that you don't know. Praise God you're not trying to fake it until you make it. Because friends, you'll never fake it and make it with Christ. Your greatest need tonight is for you to begin a genuine, real relationship with Jesus Christ by admitting, repenting of your sins, confessing Christ as Lord, believing and trusting and following Him. That's your greatest need. And if you've already done that, your greatest need is not to try and trick everybody or come up with rules for what it means to be a genuine Christ follower. Your responsibility is to open God's Word dive into it, 